remember when I was in middle school, the guys in my art class were putting all the girls in order from hottest to ugliest. One of the guys was my crush, and he was just so handsome. We were in middle school, and so I failed to see how stupid this list was and how immature the guys were. Anyway, I was listening in on the conversation and heard them talking about certain girls in our grade and listing them. One girl I sat with who knew I liked the one guy and who later dated him. What a traitorous bitch. <sighs> she asked um, she asked them what number she was. My crush told her that she was a five or something like that. I did not want to ask what number I was, but I had to ask anyway. My crush said that I was like a 16. I felt sad, ugly, but at the same time I was sort of happy that I was in the top 20. It was confusing and troubling times. Hi everybody, this is Crazy Aunt Meg with the Crazy Aunt Meg podcast. Hey everybody. So that was something that I wrote in my journal, like a little memory that I remembered long ago in middle school. That actually happened. Um, but I think it would be cool to make like a little short story out of that. But, you know, they say write what you know. And so that happened to me. So if you're listening to this, I'm a hot 16. So, woo. Now, what's been happening with me? Um, let's do some catch-up. So, lately, um, let's, I can't even think. Uh, my life is boring and nothing ever happens to me. Well, I went and spent the night with one of my good friends up in Boone. Um, we watched movies and that was pretty fun. Um, then I got paid just two days ago and I'm already broke. I only have $20 in my account. And it's not because I went crazy and bought like clothes and gadgets and shit. No, it's because I had to pay bills and rent. And um, so bills are what making me poor right now. Um, a little depressed over it. So the whole weekend I've been laying on the couch watching um, Adventure Time. If you haven't ever seen Adventure Time, it's amazing, awesome. It's um, a cartoon kid show, but honestly, even though it was on Cartoon Network and it was aimed towards kids, I honestly feel like it's more of an adult show, an adult cartoon show, because there's some really deep... Um, lessons and meanings in each of the episodes that I feel like a, a child wouldn't really necessarily pick up on. You have to be an adult to pick up on 
some of the stuff that they talk about in the kids show. So Adventure Time's just really been helping me through being depressed about my finances and just being depressed in general. Um, you know. So I really want to anybody who's going through a rough time watch Adventure Time because it really I think it really picks up your spirits. Oh, uh, let's see. So I smashed my fingers in the door at my sister's house. I didn't mean to. I was closing the door and I went to like shut it and I guess I shut it too hard and I didn't let go of the door for some stupid reason. So I smashed um, a couple of my fingers in the door. It's taken forever for them to heal because I did that like a week ago. Or maybe not a week ago, probably like four days ago. So maybe they're not taking long to heal at all. Never mind. Um, let's see, things at work are still the same. Um, been doing same old shit, different day. Um, one thing I am a little bit, uh, I guess semi-excited about at work is that everyone else is starting to see that the one manager that I've been complaining about who is a condescending prick, um, everyone else is starting to see that, yeah, maybe he is a condescending prick. So... I'm a little excited about that because it kind of sucks when you're trying to tell people something and you know for sure that it's that it is something that is true and that it's valid, but no one ever like takes you seriously because they're like, oh well, nobody else has experienced this, only you. And now that other people have experienced it, they're like, oh yeah, totally, that's totally valid. Uh, you know, thanks. Thanks later for saying I have a valid opinion instead of believing in me when I first said it. Kind of sucks, but at the same time, I'm glad other people are seeing what I've been seeing all along. Hmm. Um. I feel like other things have happened to me, but I don't really. I can't think of anything at all. Also, um bought plane ticket to New York going to New York in uh, July like the middle of July excited about that never been to New York City never been to the state New York either never really been up north I've always wanted to go up north um I think that's it I really don't have an exciting life at all people I apologize so let's talk about some philosophy. So I've got this book called 32nd Philosophies. Um, the editor is Barry Lower, L-O-E-W-E-R. I guess that's how you say it. Lower. Um, it's called 32nd Philosophies. It's one of those books that you buy at um, Barnes Noble. And it goes through all of the philosophies that have been since Aristotle up to modern day. So, I really love this book because it breaks down what each philosophy 
is and it gives you an example and so that you can understand it better because you know philosophy is very mind-boggling mind-twisted stuff and sometimes it's hard to understand so I really like how it breaks it down for you so let's start with uh, Rene Descartes I don't know if you ever heard of Rene Descartes but he's the one who came up with I think therefore I am or as he put it I am thinking therefore I exist so basically it's like how do you know that you exist how do you know that you know you're an actual real person in reality right now how do you know reality is real and someone asked him that and it took him I think years to come up with an answer and that was his answer he said I think therefore I am and you can doubt that there are other minds that humans have bodies even that philosophers are smart but you can never doubt there is an I doing the doubting the trouble with Descartes methods of doubt is that one indubitable truth I exist is not sufficient to retrieve knowledge of the world and mathematics Descartes relied on God for this trick. He first proves that God exists and is not a deceiver. If God is no deceiver, then we are not systematically misled about things we clearly and distinctly perceive and which survive rational scrutiny. From here, it is fairly easy to retrieve certain of our beliefs about the world. Hmm. So, how do you know what you're thinking right now is true, you know? How do you know what your knowledge, how do you know that your knowledge is knowledge? So, what is knowledge? Since Plato, many philosophers have thought it is a kind of justified true belief. So, knowledge has three conditions. Number one, to know something, you must believe it. Number two, it must be true. And number three, your belief that it is true must be justified. Hmm. So why can you justify, justifiably believe the right thing, but not truly know it? That's something to think of. So here's an example. So say that a man named Smith applies for a job and has a justified belief that a man named Jones will get it. Smith is also justified in believing that Jones has 10 coins in his pocket. Smith then applies logic and concludes justifiably that the person who gets the job will have 10 coins in his pocket. In fact, 
Smith gets the job, and although he didn't realize it, he also had ten coins in his pocket. That means that Smith did indeed have a justified true belief that the person who got the job would have ten coins in his pocket. But surely he didn't know this. He didn't know he had ten coins in his pocket and didn't even believe he would get the job. He had a justified true belief, but that was luck, not knowledge. There are numerous other such counterexamples to, you know, that knowledge has three conditions. That's pretty interesting. I've always found this philosophy really interesting, and this is the philosophy that the Matrix movies have been based on. If you ever seen the Matrix movies, it's got Keanu Reeves in it. And of course, all of our brains are attached to some kind of giant supercomputer and our lives are pretty much a simulation. Everything that we know, everything that we experience is all fake and it's just a computer that's living our lives through our brains. So, the brain in a vat philosophy tends to be employed to tell us something about our knowledge of the world. It asks us to imagine that a brain has been detached from a person's body, placed into a vat of fluid, and then connected to a device that entirely replicates the electrical impulses that normally come in from the outside world. The idea is that this will produce an experience of a virtual reality that is indistinguishable from the real world. Hmm. So, in other words, if it is possible that something like the scenario portrayed in the Matrix is true, then we have to accept that there is no secure foundation for our knowledge of the world. So you think that you're holding this book, reading this sentence, but you're actually, but actually you're a brain in a vat being fed electrical impulses by a supercomputer located in Boston. I always thought that one was pretty interesting and it kind of freaks me out because what if one day, you know, when we so-called die, um, we just wake up and we're in a, and we wake up out of some kind of coffin-like, I don't know, pod thing, and we have to take off these um, wires to our brains and shit, and we just wake up into, uh, I don't know, the real world, like we're just been in a virtual reality this whole time. Like, if that's the case, then, like, it's kind of fucked up, you know? It's kind of like the thing where maybe aliens, you ever seen, like, I think it was South Park. I think, yeah, I think it was South Park, where basically aliens created the Earth and um, were all on, like, a TV show series and the aliens have a TV show called Earth and the rest of the universe watches this TV show 
and in order to make things interesting the alien TV network that created Earth and owns Earth and owns the TV show called Earth they create drama and events to happen on Earth so that it keeps things interesting so it's crazy to think about but that probably is like a plausible thing you know and it's and it's also weird to think that like computers could simulate stuff so well that it feels real that everything that you feel everything you touch and everything you believe in is fake so it's kind of a a really fucked up scary thing and you hope it's not real but at the same time you don't know if it's real or not it's kind of scary so how about this David Hume reflected on the fact that we are often reason that we often reason from what has been observed in the past to what will be observed in the future. For example, from the fact that all emeralds so far observed are green, we, we may infer that emeralds observed in the future will also be green. This reasoning is called an inductive inference. Hume for, formulated this rule of induction infer that regularities observed to hold in the past will continue into the future. He then observed that inductive inferences following this rule are not deductively valid. It is logically possible for all observed emeralds are green to be true, although all emeralds are green is false. So all observed emeralds are green. You can pretty much say that's true, but if you change the words in that sentence to all emeralds are green, then it's false. So basically, we take things from the past that are always the same, like, like, he, like, like, like the example said, emeralds are green. No one has ever seen an emerald that wasn't green you know and if it isn't green then they usually call it something else they usually call it like sapphire um amethyst i don't know i don't know jewels so the main thing about emeralds is they're green right like all throughout the past all throughout the centuries every time you see a green jewel you're thinking oh well that's an emerald yeah but how do you know that um one day you're not going to find a blue emerald and you're going to be like well no that's not a blue emerald that's um i don't fucking know not i can't i don't know the name of jewels but anyway you don't even you don't know like saying something just because it's always been one thing throughout the past and throughout centuries doesn't mean that it's not going to change that it's not going to be the same thing in the future 
you know I don't know how to explain it but that one kind of fucks with my head because it's crazy so just because something has always been the same throughout the years in the past doesn't mean anything really it just means that it's always been a coincidence that it was the same throughout the past because in the future you never know that might change so it's kind of weird how do we know that the future will be like the past some messed up shit man Whew. like this philosophical stuff like fucks with my head but I love it at the same time um so how about this think about this is your mind a non-physical ghostly kind of thing that controls your body is it your brain or is it something else entirely so how the so let's talk about Rene Descartes again so basically he said the mind is essentially thinking non-spatial and can initiate free choice body is essentially extended in space non-thinking and governed by the laws of nature Descartes own view dualist interactionism is that in a living person mind and body are united and each is constantly influencing the other but how can mind affect body if the body is governed by the laws of nature that's true because if the body is governed by the laws of nature and a lot of people always say well your brain your mind is pretty much telling your body what to do then how is that possible when the body is pretty much has to follow the laws of nature so is your mind is your mind something else entirely is it some kind of magical being or something I don't know Descartes thought that the law of physics leave room for minds to affect the motions of the pineal gland and the body but as physics has advanced many philosophers have begun have become convinced that all the motions of physical bodies are governed by the law of physics this makes it especially difficult to understand how the mind can affect the body unless it is itself physical huh weird so what is the mind is the mind this physical being thing that lives inside your head you know is it your brain is it not your brain is it some kind of non-physical ghostly spirit thing that lives inside you what is your consciousness basically is it physical is it not physical does it have any type of power over your body it's weird huh it's crazy freaks me out too freaks me out now this one is 
I like this one. And it is by Derek Parfit, who is a philosopher. He asked the question, what makes a person the same person over time? His view is that a person at one time and a person at a later time are the same person by virtue of the later person having the memories of and being mentally continuous with the earlier person. So for example, Captain Kirk. If you don't know who Captain Kirk is, he is on a sci-fi show. Um, look it up. So Captain Kirk, who steps into a faulty teleporter and is beamed to Earth where two captains emerge, each with Kirk's memories, desires, etc. Both of these have equal claim to be identical to Kirk, but are clearly not identical to each other. Parfit includes that identity doesn't consist in memories and mental continuity, but he goes on to claim that this doesn't matter since what we really care about is surviving and survival consists in mental continuity. So basically, say that um, you split in half, you got a clone, you know, you know those crazy movies, TV shows where somebody gets a clone, they have the exact same memories of you, they have the exact same goals and fears and desires and hopes and dreams they basically like they're basically you but they're a clone are are you the same person or are you not the same person you know so how this would pertain in the real world is say that someone commits a crime in their youth they're you know juvenile they I don't know rob a store when they're like 14 years old and they get in trouble and arrested and stuff and they actually turn their life around in jail and um, they come out as a as an adult who goes to college works hard gets a good job but then, you know, the hiring manager looks at their record and they're like, oh, when you were 14, you robbed a store. So you must be a really bad person. Is that, but is that true though? You know, is that true? He may have made, or she may have made a mistake when they were 14 years old and they got in bad trouble robbing a store. But are they the same person when they grow up and become an adult because they turn their life around they went to college you know they got an education they did better they didn't hang out with the same crowd as before you know they worked hard so why would they're not the same person are they even though they have the same memories they have the same maybe not the same desires because you know it changed didn't want to rob a bank anymore but they got the same memories they got the same maybe hopes and dreams because even though he robbed a bank when they were 14 that doesn't mean that was always their hopes and dreams you know so are they the same person or are they not the same person something to think about so 
this one is very interesting. This is Theseus's ship. Theseus's ship is put into dry dock. Bit by bit, each part of it is replaced. As old boards is torn out, a new one is put in. Eventually, the work is complete and the ship sets sail. However, someone has been collecting all the old bits and has put them back together again, and this ship, too, goes to sea. So which of these two vessels is the real ship of Theseus? The one made of the original material, you might say. But that's not what Theseus thinks. He believes his ship has been renovated, not replaced. So how about this? Consider this for a moment, that every cell in your body changes over time. So are people particular lumps of matter or a continuous way of organizing matter that is always changing? Are we like banknotes or monetary value? So basically, this ship is put up and it's all the parts of it have been replaced because maybe it just needed a makeover, I don't know. But then all the old parts that were replaced is made into a new vessel. So, hmm, which one is the true ship of Theseus? Is it the one made of the original material? Or is it the one that's just got a makeover? That's pretty interesting because I would think that it would, I don't know. I would think it'd be the one with the original material, but if you think about it, unless they use the old original material to make a ship identical to the one, to the original ship itself, then would that be the ship of Theseus? Or if they used the old original material to build a ship that didn't look like the original ship at all, then would it not? See? It's shit like that like plays with your mind and you're just like, what the fuck? I don't know. That one's something to think about. I like that one. Whew. I don't know, man. That one kind of fucked up my brain. And that one's not even one of the hard ones either. But just like going through these and stuff, like I want to sit down, I want to think about them, and I want to find an answer. And that's the thing, though, about these paradoxes, these philosophical questions um, that make like no sense, but do make sense, but then they don't make sense, and then somehow they do make sense. It's just how your mind works. I don't know. Just like going through all this stuff, it's like life is just a fucked up glob of mess and somehow we've been doing something to make it and I don't know how, I don't know what we've been doing, but it's crazy, man. I feel like if robots ever did take over the world... I don't think they'd get rid of all of the humans entirely because they'd 
they'd read this book and they'd be like all these paradoxes and shit and then like their very practical very logical computer minds would be like oh we can't take it oh my god I can't the whole concept of life is confusing as fuck and then they'd like turn to us humans and be like you created us why did you create us and then they'd be like figure out this paradox and then scientists would be like dude listen we've been dealing with this for like centuries and we don't know what the fuck paradoxes like we we know that we're probably never going to figure this shit out so um just chill bruh so then i i like picture like a a scientist and then like a, a supercomputer. they're like smoking weed and they're like you know what, we'll never figure out paradoxes, so let's just smoke marijuana, you know? Let's just chill, man. That's how I picture the whole um, Terminator world happening, you know? That's how I picture it. So, this one's a little weird, but interesting. Pierre-Simon Laplace supposed that everything is composed of atoms and that the motions of atoms are governed by the laws that Isaac Newton discovered in the 17th century. So Laplace imagined a super intelligent and mathematically gifted demon who knows the positions and philosophy and philosophies of all particles in the universe at a particular time along with all the laws of nature. He claimed that this demon could compute the positions and velocities of all particles at every other time. The demon could predict where your body would be and how it would be moving next year from its knowledge of the positions and velocities of the particles in the universe a million years ago. Laplace's argument depends on the fact that Newton's laws are deterministic. But many philosophers have concluded that determinism is incompatible with free will. They conclude that either determinism is false or free will is an illusion. Other philosophers claim that to have free will, it is sufficient to have intentional control over whether you raise your left hand and that such control is compatible with determinism. So basically, does free will exist? Or is some kind of magical demon entity... I don't know why he called it a demon. But anyway, some kind of magical superhuman demon entity can pretty much determine how your life is going to go throughout your throughout the duration of your life because it knows how to mathematically compute your every move. So basically, it's like a I guess this demon is like a giant supercomputer. So, the place's demon calculates the way your body will move tomorrow from the positions of particles in the past, thereby depriving you of free will. So basically, do we have free will, or is it just an illusion? It's kind of scary. 
kind of scary to think about like do we have free will do we not have free will what the fuck is basically is life like this predetermined path that you will pretty much follow and you don't know that you're following it like it like your destiny no matter what choice you make no matter where you go where where you walk what you do whatever action you take whatever thought you have it doesn't matter because you're going down the path that you're predetermined to go down like your destiny or do we pretty much make up our own terms do we every choice that we make every action that we do every thought that we have every place that we go like is that of our own free will like every we don't have a predetermined path and we're pretty much just winging it on our own so it's kind of something to think of so this one's by aristotle and basically aristotle said the first rule for being good is that there are no rules being good is about developing your character so that you are disposed to do the best thing in each situation huh so human beings are creatures of habit and just as a good musician becomes so by practicing so do so by doing virtuous things we become virtuous people but what is virtue it is living according to our natures as rational animals you know a good person does human things well especially thinking because that's the one thing we can do no other living thing can and we can be guided toward we can be guided toward the right action by surrendering the idea that good and bad are opposites and like for instance courage lies between the excess of rashness and the deficiency of cowardice generosity between meanness and prolificacy kindness between the excess of disregard for others and the deficiency of indulgence contrary to how morality is often conceived aristotle's ethics are more about being good they are actually just a blueprint for living well so does so doing the right thing is not just about following rules but striking the correct balance according to the circumstances in which you find yourself both good and bad so basically there's no dark and bright side of the force but rather two dark ends and a light middle huh that one's interesting because it's kind of like how do you know someone is good because of like what actions they take you know anybody can fake being good you know serial killers do it all the freaking time you know 
they can always fake doing something good. Um, like, for example, I just read this recently, but like Ted Bundy, he saved a child from drowning, but yet he went on to kill like, you know, like 30 plus women. So is he a good person or is he not a good person because he saved that little boy's life from drowning? You know? So how do you how do you know somebody is a good person? How do you know somebody does good genuine things because of the actions that they do? So that one's kind of that one's good. I like that one. Whew. That one's kind of scary too if you think about it. Cause can you trust anybody? Kind of makes you question people's intentions, you know? Like, why are you being a good person right now? Are you hiding something? You never know. So, how about this one? Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So, basically, they had um, different ideas about the essential nature of human beings. Hobbes argued that without the civilizing effect of society, lives would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, lived in continual fear and with the danger of violent death. Rousseau, in contrast, was much more optimistic. In a state of nature, human beings are noble savages who live a solitary, peaceful existence concerned mainly with the satisfaction of their immediate needs. So if you think humans are corrupt and depraved, and that we rub along because of the civilizing effect of society, then you're with Hobbes. If you think our nature is basically noble, but that we are corrupted by malign social forces, then you are with Rousseau. So is monstrous, monstrous behavior natural or created by society? Perhaps the answer depends on whether society is part of or separate from nature. Basically, if you think um, humans deep down that we're corrupt and we're depraved and we're just, you know, not really all that great of people or not really great of a great species, then you're with Hobbes. But if you think, like, deep down we're actually, like, good people, you know, we're noble, but we can just be twisted and changed into bad people due to, like, outside forces or whatever, then you're with Rousseau. And this is um, interesting because this kind of pertains to society now in modern times um you know like the whole right wing and the left wing people um you know republicans versus democrats and all that shit so most modern forms of conservatism conservatism sorry can't even talk so most modern forms of conservatism are broadly hobbitian Conservatives tend to be suspicious of the claim that it is possible to create more harmonious societies by changing existing political and social arrangements. So if you're conservative or, you know, like you're a right-wing person, Republican, you're with Donald Trump, basically, 
then you tend to agree with Thomas Hobbes. Now, left-wing thought, in contrast, is more sanguine. Most socialists are attracted by the idea that if you get society right, you'll also get people right. So basically, if you're a socialist, you're a Democrat, you're very left-wing, um, you know, liberal, um, then you're with Rousseau. You think that humans are deep down inside good people. It's just that sometimes we're corrupted by outside forces. So which one are you? Ah, my phone fell. No worries, my phone is in a life-proof case and it didn't break. Woo! So, this one, to me, has always been interesting. Um, Immanuel Kant, he's a great philosopher. Um, basically, he said, Consistency is at the heart of morality. If I think that I deserve a certain sort of treatment then others in my situation are entitled to that treatment too. He said, act only according to that maxim by which you can, at the same time, wish that it should become a universal law. So if you don't know what that means, here's an example. Suppose you are thinking of borrowing money and promising to pay it back when you know you can never do so. Whew, I've been through there. The rule you are thinking of following might be make a false promise if it furthers your interests. If that rule were to become a universal law of nature, something followed automatically by everyone in your situation, would that world be a consistent or moral one? Or would it be a consistent moral world? Well, no one would believe a promise, so promising would be impossible, and therefore you could not make a false promise in the first place. So the rule you are considering is not in accordance with the moral law. Breaking promises is therefore wrong. So basically, if you're about to do something, um, say, I don't know, you're about to... I don't know. Crap, I can't even think of anything. The only thing that came to my mind was rob a bank. So, if you're about to rob a bank, and you go in there, and you're like, oh, I'm here to rob a bank. And then they give you the money, and you walk out, and you get caught, and you get arrested, and you get tried in, in court, and they're like, what do you think your punishment should be? And you're like, I think I should only get a year in jail. Then, from then on, if you think that robbing a bank should only give you a year in jail, then that should become consistent with all the people who robbed a bank throughout the whole entire world in court. Everyone who robbed a bank should get one year. Because that's only fair, right? But we know that in certain states, um, you know, I don't know, fucking Missouri can give that person like one year in jail. But then you go to like Texas, who tends to give people more harsher, more stricter sentencing. They might give a person who robbed a bank like 
eight, like ten years, twenty years, I don't know. So, is that being consistent? Is that being moral? You know? So what, that's, is it fair to do that? Like somebody in Missouri who robbed a bank only got one year, but then somebody who robbed a bank in Texas, they should get one year, but then they don't, they get 10 years. Is that fair? Is that moral? You know? So that's basically, I feel like, what Emmanuel Kant is getting at. However, one can see that, you know, there might be a flaw with this because suppose that you're walking down the street going to meet your friend for drinks and somebody collapses on the street because I don't know they got stabbed by somebody so you're you just happen to be a passerby at this particular moment so you go over to help that person who just got stabbed on the side of the street and you're going to be late meeting your friend for drinks or you might even not meet your friend for drinks because the situation might take you away from that you know so if you were consistent and you promised your friend that you were going to come for drinks you if you were going to be consistent and be I don't know morally obligated to your friend you would pass that person on the street who just got stabbed and be like hey sorry um, it goes against my morals to let down my friend who I promised to meet for drinks. So you're just going to have to, you know, help yourself. Like, I can't really help you right now because it's the universal law that if you promise your friend that you're going to meet them for drinks, then you have to go meet them for drinks. I can't stop and help you. So it's kind of like a gray area, you know? So... What do you think? So there's a whole bunch more philosophy stuff I want to talk about. Maybe I'll talk about it in another episode. I don't want to like drain all of you of your mind and thinking and stuff. So I'm going to finish out this episode with one of the philosophical questions or scenarios that everyone is pretty much familiar with. I know a lot of people are familiar with. Um, but basically, it's the trolley problem. So, a trolley is running out of control down a track. In its path are five people who are tied to the track. Happily, it is possible to flip a switch that will send the trolley down a different track to safety. Unfortunately, there's one person tied to that track who will be killed if you flip the switch. What should you do? Most people say that it is right to flip the switch. If you're committed to utilitarian ethics where an action is right to the extent that it increases the general happiness, it seems that you are duty-bound to change the course of the trolley. So basically, a trolley's going down a track and five people, like it said, are tied to that track and you have to save those five people's lives. And you can flip a switch and send it to a different track and it would only kill one person because on that track only one person's tied to it. Most people would be like, yeah, sure, I'll flip the switch because it's better to save p 
five people than it is to save just one person. Because for the general consensus is that, you know, saving five people, saving five lives is the better option than saving just the one life. So a lot of people would choose to flip the switch. However, Judy, Judith Jarvis Thompson, so that's Judith Jarvis Thompson, suggests an interesting variation on the trolley problem, which shows that our utilitarian intuitions are not wholly reliable. And this is very interesting. So the scenario is the same. Except, this time, you're standing on a bridge under which the trolley will pass, and there's a large man standing next to you. The only way to save the five people is to push him onto the track, thereby stopping the trolley. Is this the right thing to do? The moral calculus seems similar. One person to save five. But this time, the moral intuition is different. People tend to think that it would be wrong to push the man off the bridge. So basically, flipping a switch is super easy because we're not actually physically pushing somebody in front of the trolley. We're not with our hands, with our body, pushing somebody in front of a trolley. We're just flipping a switch. So it's much more easier to flip a switch and end the life of the one person to save five. But like Miss um, Thompson said, if you were standing on a bridge and there's a large man next to you and the only way to save these five people is to pretty much throw him off the bridge and save those five people, it becomes much more intimate. It becomes much more, I don't know, like killer like you, I guess people would feel more like a killer if they did that. It feels more awkward and more scary to be in that situation rather than the other one where all you do is just flip a switch. You know, in this instance, it's more intimate where you actually are pushing somebody off a bridge. So, who is it okay to divert a trolley so that it runs over one person rather than five people? Why is it not okay to push a passerby in front of a trolley in order to save the lives of the same five people? So it's weird that humans think it's okay to flip a switch, but that it's not okay to push somebody off a bridge, you know? So is our moral compasses kind of fucked up? I feel like they are. Um, two things seem to be involved in our responses to these scenarios. First, if we divert the trolley, we are not doing something directly to the man tied to the track as we would be if we pushed the man off the bridge. Secondly, the man tied to the track is already involved in the events, whereas the man on the bridge is not. Neither explanation is particularly satisfactory. Our responses to this problem probably have more to do with human psychology than strictly moral reasoning.
kind of fucked up to think about. But, I mean, could you push the man off the bridge to save five people? I mean, could you flip a switch to save five people? You know? What would you do? What would you not do? Would you just let those five people die? It's it's kind of a fucked up situation to be in, but you never know. What does that say about human morals, human psychology? What does that say about us? I don't know. That one's kind of tough. But I hope y'all enjoyed that. And I'll be back with some more philosophical shit to fuck up your minds. So have fun. And next episode, you know, I'll psychologically damage you even more. Yay!